Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you probably know two facts about me, which I mention from time to time. I'm Jewish, and I grew up in Boston. I don't usually talk about those two things at the same time, but growing up Jewish in Boston was interesting. And my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, had huge civic pride in the neighborhoods that they lived, Quincy and Brookline. But there was also this constant low-level anxiety. Are we really welcome? Could it ever happen here? And we all knew what it was. It would probably sound something like this scene from the Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle. I was back east at the end of the war, in Boston. Jesus. Yeah, yeah you have to see it to believe it, friend. Overnight, lynch mobs were murdering Jews because suddenly we were less than human. The Man in the High Castle is based on a novel by Philip K. Dick which imagines what would have happened if the Axis powers won World War II. In his scenario, the Nazis developed the atomic bomb before we did and dropped it on Washington. And then they threatened more American cities if we didn't surrender. The Germans took the eastern half of the country. The Japanese took the west coast. Those two characters you heard were Jews in San Francisco trying to hide their identity. There are no Jews left on the east coast. My family would be gone. I would have never existed. Needless to say, this show struck a nerve with me. But it has struck a nerve with a lot of people because it doesn't ask, could it happen here? It happened. The show actually asks a more disturbing question. After all is said and done, how many Americans could live with it? You mind I ask a tattoo on your arm? Oh. Soldier so fierce, he'd kill a rose. That was you? Oh, a long time ago. We lost the war, didn't we? Now I can't even remember what we were fighting for. <laughs> like in this scene where Joe, a character from New York, is pulled over by a friendly cop in the Midwest. And then these white flakes fall from the sky, but it's not snow. What is that? Oh, that's the hospital. The hospital? Yeah, Tuesdays, they burn cripples, the terminally ill, drag on the state. There you go. You have a safe trip, son. In a moment, I'll talk with two of the creators of Man of the High Castle about a world we don't want to imagine, 
but we need to. There's an expression in science fiction and fantasy genres called world building. And I love that expression because it's so empowering. Like you can build these worlds with your imagination and invite other people inside. And I want to focus on the world building of Man in the High Castle because it's some of the most creative, subtle, and disturbing work I've ever seen. And the production design itself raises profound questions. Season two, by the way, starts streaming on Amazon December 16th. Now, one of the many interesting choices they made was to set the first season in 1962. That's when the novel by Philip K. Dick was published. Hitler is still alive, but he's old, his health is failing, and there's a power struggle to succeed him. The resistance movement in the U.S. has mostly been killed or captured, but some of them are out there, deep undercover. And a new generation has come of age that only knows this world. So what do they think of it? Do they really understand what's been lost? One of the greatest challenges of this show was to do a period piece of a period that never existed. Dan Percival is one of the executive producers, and he directed a lot of the episodes. He says when imagining this world, this fascist America of the 1960s, you can only rely so much on archival material from World War II. One of the dangers of Man in the High Castle is the aesthetic slips to the 40s. And of course, that would have evolved too, with technology, with design, with 17 years of peace and relative prosperity under the Nazis in a world that was no longer in conflict. Setting it in the 60s also has disturbing parallels. This should have been the dawn of the civil rights movement and the women's movement. But watching this reality unfold only reminded me that progress is not inevitable. It's fragile. That's right. It is enormously fragile. Drew Boughton is the production designer. You know, the post-war America included several things, and those are the things that we needed to really remove from our visual world. For, For example, the exuberant post-war Times Square didn't happen. 1957 Chevy cars and and consumerism did not happen. So rock and roll would never have happened. Dylan Ginsberg, all these people would never happen. The Beatles would never have happened. None of those things that define our version of 1962 would never have come into existence. And no bright, bold colors either. People in fascist countries typically don't want to stand out or make a splash. But the main theme that they wanted to explore was how fascism co-ops the culture that it absorbs and corrupts your own icons and imagery until you're not sure what's yours and what's theirs. From Chicago, Glenn, welcome to Guess My Game. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. For example, the uh, game show where, you know, the young Nazi uh, is speaking in an American accent and answering about his exploits in cornfields and so forth. Is your game something you trained for in Hitler Youth? Yes, it certainly is, Phil. How did you approach New York? I mean, living in New York myself now, I every time you cut to the skyline, I almost I want to pause and look mm. to see what you took away, what you added. It's and it's fascinating. We decided that uh, if you look carefully as a New Yorker, you'll notice that the Nazi HQ building is positioned exactly where the United Nations building would have been. I did notice that. Yes, so we. Uh, we, you know, that didn't happen, and the Nazis built a big building there. Uh, we we gave the entire city uh, a haircut because it, 
prior to World War II, there were not that many tall buildings in, in Manhattan anyway. So, so it was really a, a combination of looking at the research from the period and then uh, you know, making a few choices about how much the Nazis would allow any other building in New York to be taller than theirs. And you know, we have decided, of course, they would not. The dominant character in New York is John Smith, who has the rank of Obergruppenführer. At home, he is father knows best. At work, he's a Nazi in every sense of the word, except with an American accent. He's played by the British actor Rufus Sewell. You torture men. Do you have a problem with beating a man to death? No, Obergruppenführer. Good. And do as you're told. Rufus and I talk endlessly about you know, John Smith and his backstory and what, what made him who, who he is. And, and John Smith was not a character from Philip K. Dick's book, actually, but he was a necessary and important character for the TV show. Dan Percival imagines that John Smith fought for America in the war, and he would have stayed a patriotic American if things didn't change. But once the war was lost, Nazism offered a kind of stability for men like Smith. What you also have to remember is America pre-war, for a great many of the population of America, was not such a great place. You know, it had been through a horrific depression. There had been many people who were in desperate poverty. There had even been cases of people dying of starvation. You know, so is this an America anyone wanted back? Uh, for a lot of the white population coming out of, you know, seven years of brutal conflict, Nazism would not have been an unappealing option. Like in this scene at the breakfast table, Smith's son Thomas says that he's bothered by another boy in his class who has long hair and an attitude. A boy like Randolph wants only to gratify himself. Now this is the path to moral decay. The decadence ruined this country before the war. You will grow to be a useful member of society. will make our nation stronger. Randolph will not. Whatever his test score. Your father's a wise man, son. One of the disturbing things about Man in the High Castle is are the things that remain and retain. And the things that make should make us most uncomfortable about it is, you know, once you accept this political reality and you keep your head down, you get along, and you're white, life isn't so bad. It works, it's a successful economy, you've got a fixed price system, it's technologically advanced, and some of the ideas of Nazism are not unappealing to a passive majority, as long as you're not in, on the victim side of the scale. I asked Drew Boten how he approached designing the suburbs of Long Island. In a very interesting uh, related thing, Yafank, New York, uh, has, a, has a very uh, interesting history and unfortunately includes uh, a very large uh, American Nazi uh, period and Wait, what was this? Hold on. What, what was this town you're talking about? That it was, it's that called was a, a Yafank. It's a but it was a Nazi stronghold in the 30s. Yeah, there was an American Nazi um, uh, camp, and uh, pr there were parades down the main street. You can Google all this. Wow. And uh, there was a sort of a spectacular, uh, some spectacular images of you know people's garden hedges in the shape of a swastika. Oh my God. This this happened here, and uh, this happened here. I did Google Yafank, New York. I saw pictures of the streets named after Hitler and Himmler. I saw the hedge in the shape of a swastika that he was talking about. In the show, he put that hedge at the airport. 
But then I called somebody at the Yafank Historical Society, and she told me a slightly different story, which was actually more disturbing. She says, yes, there were a lot of German-Americans who were pro-Nazi in that town, but they were a minority. Now, that may sound like an excuse, but the parade that Drew talked about, which had 5,000 people in it, the town had a population of 2,000. And the city council was working with the federal government to get rid of the Nazi element. This town got a reputation as being a bad apple. But Nazi sympathizers were coming from Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens to spend their summers there. 20,000 of them went to a, quote, pro-America rally in Madison Square Garden. The pictures are shocking. There is a huge, glowing image of George Washington standing between swastikas and American flags. One of, the, one of the common misunderstandings people make of the show, particularly in, in this country, in America, is they read the show as, isn't it terrible, we've been occupied by Germans or we've been occupied by Japanese and, and we've got to fight back, you know, get America back. And this should be a resistance story, if you like. It's not. This is about how we become Nazis. Sieg Glad you could make it. Saw you in the parade on TV. It was really something. Oh, yes, it was. Hey, Harry. Sing Kyle. Sing Kyle. So that's the East Coast. It sucks. But the West Coast isn't a lot better. To imagine a Japanese-occupied San Francisco, the production designer, Drew Bowden, looked at how Imperial Japan dealt with the territories that it conquered in real life. Now, Japan didn't care about imposing an ideology like the Nazis did. That's why in the show, some Nazis speak with German accents, but most of them are American-born. But the Japanese in the West Coast are very much foreign occupiers. For our world in, in uh, the uh, Japanese Pacific states, we wanted something less formal, essentially more indifferent or disrespectful to the existing Caucasian population. Uh, white people would be towards the bottom of the, uh, the scale. Not uh, a class to be exterminated, but a class to be disrespected and subjugated. This San Francisco has a thick layer of Japanese culture spread on top of it. So a character like Juliana Crane, who grew up after the war, is culturally fluid. She speaks Japanese, she eats Japanese food, and takes martial arts, much to her mother's disapproval. They killed your father. Come on, Ma. Mr. Nakamura is one of the good guys. Marched my poor John to his death, and now his own daughter thinks they're one of the good guys. Juliana soon learns the hard way that cultural adaptation can only take you so far when you're living under fascism. Now, the landscape where Juliana lives feels very California to me, which is impressive because the show is filmed in Vancouver. I asked Drew Bowden how he pulls that off. Thank you for asking. We have we have uh, three different color palettes uh, for the show f- for this purpose. And for the Pacific states, we use the uniform colors of the Kempatai military, which is a kind of a warm yellowy green color. But mostly we use uh, watery aquatic colors in the wardrobe and the paint colors on uh, interior sets and locations and vehicles in the street to give a, a general sense of West Coast watery kind of aquatic colors. That's so interesting. So my my wife's from San Francisco, and so we go back there a lot. And uh, 
So it's something I'm just very, I'm always very aware of the differences between New York and San Francisco, which made the the show even more um, creepy to, <laughs> to mm, me. Yes. I, 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 I'm seeing how both cities are being co-opted. Yeah. There is one more locale in the United States. The Axis powers set up a neutral zone that runs from the Grand Canyon up through the Rocky Mountains. I find that world just as unnerving because it's rife with spies and double agents. It feels like a combination of a Western and a film noir. The neutral zone is perhaps my favorite place in in our story world because it's the place where everybody who is unsafe in these other two areas can go and can be themselves. So in, in in that set situation, what we chose to do is let there be all colors uh, to represent all people, but that they're faded and that they are sun bleached and rusted. And so that created a kind of a, a some have called it a nostalgic kind of hold on, on an American past. I'm so sorry I can't pay you. You what? Someone stole my wallet, all my money. I'm really sorry. This ain't no charity, lady. No, I know. I'm really embarrassed. How are you going to pay me? I told you I can't. Wrong answer. How are you going to pay me? I'll pay for it. No, I don't need your money. Whoever you are, I... Oh, yes, you do. It's two marks, please. There you go. Finally, they had to imagine Berlin. Hitler and Albert Speer had enormous plans for Berlin post-war. Again, Dan Percival. Um, They wanted to create an entire city within the city called Germania. And the plans for this existed. They even started experimenting with, with, with concrete foundations for the world's most vast building called the Vauxhall. And the Vauxhall was a dome. I think it was at least 10 times bigger than, than the, the next biggest dome created. It was so vast that they thought it would have its own weather. Um, it, you would have been able to put the Eiffel Tower inside it. So we create this, we built this in 3D design, but also in set stages. Now, as a production designer, Drew Boten says, uses sets and real locations more than you'd expect. I mean, they're still on a TV budget, and digital effects are expensive. But that's not the biggest challenge. I think the, the, the biggest thing to overcome was convincing people when we would go to, to shoot at one of their locations or one of their buildings that, that we meant well. Just because we're a TV show and we're going to hang swastika flags on their, on their building, that you know we're, we're coming with uh, an anti-fascist intention. It's not just the swastika flags. In one scene, there's an advertisement on the wall for the Punch Bowl, starring Rock Hudson and June Allison. The Punch Bowl was not a Hollywood movie from that time, but it was the most popular movie in Nazi Germany. And Drew thought the Nazis will want to remake that here. We certainly knew that uh, that Aryan actors would be preferred from the perspective of the Nazi sort of uh, culture police. Then, then we went through a number of them, and then we, we only found a few estates that would be willing to have their parents portrayed as having survived the war and playing ball in the new media uh, uh, movie world. That's fascinating. It, it is, and and you know, by the time we get somebody, it it, it isn't necessarily Rock Hudson is a is a terrific uh, actor for us to to feature in that ad, but uh, he was not the first person that we looked at. That's it. So Rock Hudson's um, estate basically said, "Yeah, we think you're doing something important, and you 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 have permission to use his image." That's right. 
Yep. Well, I don't know if you're going to go to Hollywood this season, but someday I think that would be so fascinating. To, to I mean, unfortunately, of course, you'd have to. It'd be even worse in terms of what actors, given that most of them probably would still have survived. You know, you have to figure out, or, you know, who's going to be playing ball, and that I'm sure that'd be a legal minefield, but it would be fascinating. It, it really would be. I mean, you know, we 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 had speculated that Leni Reifenstahl would have basically taken over all film production in the greater Nazi world, including any Western stars. But those Western stars would probably be in New York rather than because they couldn't be in the Japanese Pacific states. So Hollywood disappeared effectively. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I was imagining suddenly like the this little um, island of uh, Nazis allowed to live in Hollywood, right? They just rebuilt it on the East Coast. Absolutely. But when we attempted to uh, contact the Reifenstahl, Reifenstahl estate to do that, they denied us. So... We, we were not allowed to sort of create or invent a Alini Reifenstahl film unit. Now, just to complicate things more, there is one more element of the show that I haven't mentioned, but it's really important. The Resistance has been smuggling newsreel films. In the first episode, Juliana Crane gets a hold of one of these contraband films. She puts it in a projector in her basement apartment, and she sees actual newsreel footage from our World War II. And then her boyfriend, Frank, walks in. Frank! Hey. Hey, what is this? It's newsreel film. Yeah, I see that. It shows us winning the war. Yeah, but we didn't win the war. That's what they told us. Jesus, I know what this is. What? The man in the high castle. Who? So, some guy had told me about it. He makes these anti-fascist movies. Makes them. G.I.s and Times Square. No, I know. They look real. Yeah, they look real because they are real. No, but they can't be. Can they? That's right. They're living in a multiverse. Then again, it's Philip K. Dick. I mean, what did you expect? Although in his novel, the other timelines are hinted at. But in the TV series, they are unmistakably real. Juliana and Frank are not the only characters to discover this. The most sympathetic character among the Japanese occupiers is a trade minister named Tagomi. We must all have faith in something, Miss Green. We cannot see ahead alone. He's from Nagasaki, a Nagasaki that survived the war without a scratch. In the first season, he also gets a glimpse into our timeline. And this is what it looks like to him. A good man who sees L962 as an appalling place. Japan was defeated. Nagasaki and Hiroshima were obliterated. And where the world he's in, in 1962, September, October 1962, is on the verge of nuclear annihilation. This isn't a better world. It's just another alternate option. Yeah, I was thinking for people like Juliana or Frank, who would be much happier in our reality, I also sort of feel their frustration as well, that you can't sort of fantasize your way out of this, the the world that you are in. Yes, it's absolutely true. You know, I, I think it's, you're right, you know, Juliana and Frank would be happier in our version of 962, without a doubt, they would be leading a very different life. What I find extraordinary about the world we live in now is is how, you know, depressed, miserable, addicted it can be even when we have all these things. I think back to my, my grandfather who, who fought through the Second World War and his whole generation were a generation that compared downwards. 
they always looked at the world and said, oh, I'm, I'm so grateful for, I'm so much better off, you know, at least I'm, I, my life isn't as, as rocky as that. And they lived through hell. They went through appalling experiences. You know, the Blitz in London, my father and grandmother were separated for five years during the war. And by the time he came home, he said, the rest of my life was just heaven. Nothing mattered compared to that. For the generations of us who grew up in post-war consumer culture, affluent society, we always compare upwards. I'm not as pretty as, I'm not as good as, I don't drive a big enough car, I'd, I should be richer, I should be happier, I should be better looking, I should be... We look at our world and feel resentful. A lot of critics have written about the parallels between Man in the High Castle and our politics today. It is a particularly interesting and potentially dangerous time, not just in America, but in the Western world. But Dan Percival doesn't like taking the high moral ground in real life or in judging the characters on his show. Philip K. Dick was very keen to point out that, you know, we fit into the circumstances we're dealt. We adapt to them. And all our characters have adapted to the world they're in. And their moral compass is very well established to that world, whether they're rebelling against it or whether they're supporting it instrumentally. That's why I find the characters in The Resistance so inspiring. Because some of them, like Juliana, have seen another world where they would probably be happier. But they're not obsessed with trying to get to that world or fantasize about it. It just makes them more committed to fight for the world that they live in. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Dan Percival and Drew Boughton, who keeps getting asked whether he'd rather live in the East Coast or the West Coast in their world. And he's like, what about the neutral zone? I mean, why would I want to live in either of them, you know? That, that, I, I don't really remember any question that was more sort of like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, I know. I'm not very outdoorsy, so that would be a problem. Um, <laughs> that we we'd be out there. Uh, we'd be chopping wood and uh, you know making you know whatever. God, it's so it's so powerful. It's funny. Every time I watch the show, I I I, um, I turn off and I'll say to my wife, "The Nazis were horrible." <laughs> like the Japanese were horrible. <laughs> it's just like you needed that show uh, to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 weird, you know, because because I I sometimes look at the show and I think, well, are we being horrible enough? It seems like we're maybe not as bad as actual history. But um, there's something so horrible about the banality of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Imaginary Worlds is part of the Panoply Network. You can like the show on Facebook, where, by the way, I asked recently if people have ideas for stories that I could do in 2017, and I got a lot of great responses. I also tweet at E. Malinsky, and you can support the show on Patreon. I'll include a link on my site, Imaginary Worlds Podcast. Org. Panoply. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.